It's two minutes to midnight on the doomsday clock. It's all f***ed up, and we gotta un all this The UK and France are both showing us up protest-wise right now. Fashy orange president keeps saying stuff. The insects are dying. We're putting people into camps again. That's been happening. QAnon is a thing. Politics aside, if you believe our one black president was a secret Muslim born in Kenya, and this rich white president who doesn't like to read and pays porn stars to f*** him is actually a secret genius saving the world from a shadowy cabal of satanic pedophiles, and that all his spelling and grammatical errors are actually coded messages, and you believe this because of someone on f 4chan? Maybe just ask yourself, is it possible that I'm just a racist? Is that possible? Just. It's all fucked up. Oceans fucked, forests fucked, climate fucked, it's all fucked. Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, ice capes melting, meteors becoming crashed into us. But, um, Into the Spider-Verse was actually pretty great, so go see that, I guess. <laughs>
And it seems like if you can replicate uh, a ham sandwich, you could probably replicate functioning genitals. I mean, <laughs> that's fair. But they also eventually got him like a little like badge that he wore that was like a uh, a hologram projector. So he like he got projected by the main projector, and then he would clip a little badge on himself, and then that would be the, his new projector, so he could walk around wherever he wanted. Oh yeah, yes that that was technology from one of their time travel episodes. It was like 29th century tech. I just remember that in one of the Voyager time travel episodes, um, there was a guy who was like the captain of a time ship whose job it was to correct anomalies in time. And so he would like come down with the ship and like shoot a planet and erase whole civilizations that were never supposed to have existed and stuff like that. And he was played by the dad from that 70s show. I cannot get, this is not immersive for me. He's just going to tell the planet, I'm going to kick your ass. And then he like shoots the, the civilization and destroys it. I'm going to groundlessly assert that it is the dad from that 70s show. And he was in the 70s correcting time anomalies <laughs> and possibly got stuck there. Can we talk about that magic carpet ride for a second in Aladdin? Okay, let's. So they start in Agrabah, which isn't real, of course, but we have to assume it's somewhere in the general vicinity of Saudi Arabia because of the establishing Saudi Arabian nights, right? So they're flying around, and they eventually end up in Egypt, I guess, which is nearby enough that it kind of makes sense. But then it ends with them in China watching fireworks. How long were they flying? Like how either either they were flying for a really long time, and she was like, "I'll be back in three weeks," or that carpet goes super fast. I have to assume that a uh, flying carpet has warp capabilities of some kind. Also, and. And this is just a really dumb uh, critique that doesn't warrant any like further consideration. But if they were taking all that time to fly to Egypt and then China, did they stop their song and then pick it back up again? Or were they singing the whole time and <laughs> it just cut out some <laughs> verses or something? I, mean, I know the narrative enters a kind of altered state of consciousness when a musical number begins, mm -hmm. so you can't take it that literally. But, but still. Are they perceiving, are the characters perceiving themselves singing, or is that just like just for us? Like, how diegetic is this? Well, we also have to take into account the fact that that song is definitely about them having sex that night, right? I assume that's why they got married in the third one. <laughs> <laughs> they have to. Yeah. No, some of the lyrics, I remember listening to the song as an adult and thinking, this is definitely, like, they're definitely having sex right now during this song. Like, that's definitely what Jasmine's talking about, which makes sense with the ending with fireworks. I don't know. I could be taking it too far. You're going to make me rewatch Aladdin. Jeremy, congratulations on your new movie podcast. <laughs> Um, you were visiting with the boyfriend? Yeah, he, uh, he came up from, uh, San Diego area on, what was it, Friday? Yeah, Friday afternoon, and we spent the weekend up in the Seattle area, ended up at the, the state fair for a little while, and then he went back on Monday. Aww. <laughs> we also went to, um, Snoqualmie Falls, where, uh... Some establishing shots for Twin Peaks were filmed. 
So got some nice, nice shots with uh, the waterfall and the, the exterior of the, the hotel in mm-hmm. Twin Peaks. And we went into North Bend to the uh, the diner where the original shots of the diner from Twin Peaks were filmed. We got the cherry pie and coffee, the whole deal. Nice. Saw some, saw some drawings of owls on the walls. Have you checked your photos for appearances of Bob yet? That's how you know it's an authentic Twin Peaks-inspired photo, is Bob is just there. Oh, he's in all of them. Also, I, fa- I was at a grocery store up there, and I found that the type of chewing gum that I enjoyed had come back into to fashion. Nice. Uh, and I bumped into somebody I hadn't seen for 25 years. Did you also kill Laura Palmer? Actually, I was like, I was looking at a list of sites from Twin Peaks. I'm like, oh, we could do this, we could do this. It was like, one of them was the beach where Laura's body was found. Did you ever, um, actually, I don't think you were very close to very many people who were super into Twilight. Uh, I ended up getting sort of shanghaied into a trip up to Forks for the Twilight tour out on the peninsula. That was fun. The author got the name of the grocery store in the town correct and not much else. So it was really cool to see, like, this is the house from whatever part of the book. And they have a description of the house as, like, this amazing multi-floor mansion with windows all over the place. And you look at the house and it's just a house on a street somewhere. They're, like, trying to find the best approximation to fit with the author's description. But it's just, like, a, a dinky nothing town in the middle of nowhere that you just can't... Yeah. Uh, yeah, Forks is kind of an interesting beast. Christine and I have gone a few times to, like, a little resorty cabin thing for vacations mm-hmm. near there, and so we, like, stopped off in Forks, and each time it just sort of struck me how they're really trying to force the Twilight connection with it, like... Like, a coffee shop will be like, the werewolf cafe, where werewolves have coffee, yeah. or just, like, something really forced like that. Last time I was there, it was at the height. Like, the movies were still coming out and everything, and uh, everywhere had Twilight stuff, like Vampire This, Werewolf That, whatever. And then there was one hotel on the outskirts of town, and their little reader board, like, next to the vacancy, no vacancy, just had a little message that said, Edward Cullen did not stay here. Like, <laughs> way to stick it to him, guys. <laughs> Uh, we went to a went to a diner where they had this wall where you wrote like the names of the people in your party under the column for either Team Edward or Team Jacob. And then off to the side, I wrote my own little column for Team Dracula and wrote my name there. And I felt monstrously clever. <laughs> oh no, I just made a joke. Monstrously. Dudes. Anyway, Frankenberry, Booberry, or Count Chocula. And there's another one. It's called Fruit Brute. I think it has a werewolf on it, but they needed to come up with like a, a snappy title so they could be like Berry Wolf, Wary Wolf. I don't know. How many hours do you think were spent uh, in meetings trying to come up with another <laughs> rhymy type <laughs> cereal? <laughs> so I'm trying to think of a flavor, like a, a kid cereal flavor that rhymes with corpse, but I can't quite think of anything. <laughs> Oh, I would love to see the whiteboard from those meetings. <laughs> um, have you watched any of The Good Place? Yeah, I think I got like halfway through season two, and I just kind of fell out of it for no particular reason. Yeah, I just started season two this morning. I I don't. I was curious where they were gonna go 
because they couldn't just have the same sort of repeating over and over. Yeah, they burned down their status quo from season one at the end. Yeah, and they they try to they I feel like they've done a pretty good job so far of establishing that they they recognize that. Yeah, it does interesting stuff. I mean, I can't really think of another show that treads the same ground in the same way. I'm I'm wondering where they came up with the idea. I mean, this is all in the Bible. I forgot about that. The part, the part in uh, Job where they talk about a uh, a fountain of clam chowder. And a fountain of clam chowder shall be poured out upon you, for I am the Lord. All caps. <laughs> hey, God, Job's pretty cool, but I bet he would curse you. No. Why don't you kill all his family and see if he does? Okay. But God. Stop worrying, Stop worrying Job. Fine, I'll get you a new family. Well, that was kind of the gist of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I remember back in my Christian days, if I was having like a little crisis of faith, people would be like, oh, just remember Job, go back and read Job. And I did, and I was like, God's mean, and the only reason he gives to trust him is... You have to, because I said so. And even if you're the best person in the world, I'll still kill your family, and you just have to beat it. Yeah, he just, like, shows up at the end in a whirlwind and is like, I'm God, I do what I want, my neck's right, I'm smarter than you. <laughs> I forgot about the whirlwind. So like, even the form he takes to come down, it's just pure destruction all the time. Cool God, cool religion. Speaking of our um, religious days and our, our old philosophical discussions until 3 a.m. at Sherry's, we talked about, maybe in this episode we talked about the Matrix, uh... But neither one of us had either the time or the particular interest in sitting through all three of the Matrix movies again right now. But yeah, <laughs> uh, just the other day, I did see a tweet where somebody described the Matrix as a hilariously misinterpreted movie about how instead of being about uh, all of this like like a, a veiled reference referencing a uh, sort of, like, philosophical or spiritual principles, like, veiling it with the the image of, like, an action movie, has actually doubly veiled um, reference to growing up knowing that you're trans in a world that doesn't accept that. And basically it's an allegory for growing up and eventually coming out as trans in an aggressive, antagonistic world. Yeah. Especially with now both of the Wachowskis having come out and transitioned or began transitioning. I thought that was a really interesting uh, interpretation never never really thought about before. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it is like the innermost nesting doll of layers of meaning, or if it's just another narrative that you can read into it, or, I mean, it's so, like, cosmic and hero's journey that it can apply to so many different situations, but I, absolutely, I can see how it would be kind of filled with, like, this emotional material from their own uh, struggles with their own identity and the, how the world feels about it. I feel like I read somewhere that originally... In earlier drafts of the script, Switch was going to be, I can't remember which one it is, but female in The Matrix and male in real life or vice versa. And that's where the name came from. Yeah. I remember hearing that too. And then the studio execs were like, not like these, not like these. <laughs> yeah, this is too complicated. No one will get it. 
But at least that concept uh, had a little bit of resurgence in the the Matrix MMO when Neo came back to life as a woman. Yeah, the Matrix MMO. I tried to play that game on my dial-up modem with my spotty rural connection. And I tried to play as a spy, which was all about like <laughs> sneaking up on people, which is really difficult when your connection would just like lag out. And I would just like, I would come to, so to speak, having totally lost the battle after like attempting to sneak into a room, it would just be like frozen and then, yep. oh, I'm dead. So it was, it was a frustrating experience. But yeah, the mythology got kind of strange. There was a dude made out of flies and Morpheus got assassinated, or did he? I don't know. I don't know. Oh yeah, so this might bring it back to The Matrix a little bit. Um, But for some reason, I thought maybe I could bring this up and we'll see what happens. So, uh, having a kitten who has a sleep cycle that seems to be different than human beings... Um, Did I see him on the bed behind you just now? Yep, he's all stretched out. Aww. He's pretty adorable. Look at that guy. Super cuddly. Just the cuddliest. Um, And then bitey. And then cuddly. Oh, yeah. Um, So anyway, having having that little guy waking up at four in the morning and deciding that it's playtime now. uh, My sleep has been a little wonkier and I um, I had trouble getting back to sleep early this morning so I missed out on I don't know an hour an hour or two of sleep so I decided I was gonna sleep a little bit longer and that always results in like strange dreams or strange sensations. Right. You know, I had, like, a really vivid dream about nothing in particular, and then woke up feeling very... There's, like, almost like a haze of unreality. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, and uh, so that, that that's kind of similar to depersonalization, derealization, um, which was something that I experienced a lot of in adolescence, which is, I think, part of why I connected with the Matrix. Like, if you're having an experience of unreality, or that there's just not whatever quality of of realness to life or you as a person or something like that, that, that was really appealing to me to think that, oh, well, maybe there is a real world out there, or, or maybe it's just a symbol for a mode of being that is more real or a kind of consciousness that is more real or something like that. Uh, so right. I was wondering if you connected with any of that, or if I uh, experienced anything like that. Oh, I've experienced exactly that. Especially, like you say, um, in those moments when it sort of almost feels like you're on that barrier between being asleep and being awake, whether it's because you woke up, went back to sleep, and had a strange dream, or I find it because I often have trouble falling asleep. Basically, when I stay up too late and I'm getting so, so tired but can't quite fall asleep, I start getting that feeling a lot. So even getting up to get a drink of water when I'm in that in that sort of place, I, I question what is even real about the moment. It feels like navigating that sort of strange dream space where I don't really know 
what's real, what isn't, or even like sometimes like where I begin and end. And I used to have um, nightmares as a kid where they were so vivid and terrifying and I didn't know what was real and what wasn't that I would like go into one of my brother's rooms and like shake them awake just so I could talk to them and like establish something about reality mm. again. Yeah, I, I don't get it as much nowadays, but I definitely, I definitely do feel it from time to time. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was thinking about that. Like, did it, did it go away completely, or did I just sort of stop noticing it, or did it just become the new normal and it just stopped bothering me so much? I mean, mm. and also just what is the difference between feeling the derealization and feeling. I don't know, believing in reality at face value. You know what I mean? There's like a different feeling quality to it, but it's kind of hard for me to put my to put my finger on. Uh, I'd like to hear more about what you just said about like believing in reality at face value. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just a light afternoon conversation, a little <laughs> chit chat. Yeah, I mean that's well, okay. So that that's that's a whole ball of wax, right? So, like, right now, I don't feel especially de-real. Um, that feeling sort mm-hmm. of faded as the day went on and um, got a lot better after meditation, which is kind of ironic because in Buddhist meditation, you're you're working to see into the, the emptiness and the unreal nature of the self and stuff like that. So the fact that that would kind of mm-hmm. drive away the deep derealization, depersonalization sensations. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Or maybe there's a difference between the two. Maybe. Actually, I just watched a Shinzen Young video where he talks briefly about he calls depersonalization, derealization, I'll just abbreviate it DPDR, so to shorten it, um, he calls it the uh, evil twin of enlightenment. So he doesn't really oh. offer a thesis but he's like, it's something I've encountered, and it's something that meditation can even cause in a minority of cases. Or And so he has like practices that he'll give people to work with the DPDR. Um, but he, he doesn't really make an assertion about the connection between DPDR and enlightenment. But he says it may be the same nothingness that is being perceived, or... Um, I don't know, opened to, uh, but maybe in, in DPDR, there's a resistance to it or the ego has a particular, uh, afflictive relationship with it or something like that. But I don't know. There's a situation that would sometimes sort of spark that, that feeling in me was, uh, especially when I was younger, elementary, middle school age, uh, if I saw my own reflection, not just like glimpsing it, but if I like really looked at my own reflection and examined it while thinking like this is me and like trying to conceptually connect my perception and my concept of who I am with the like physical image that I see in front of me, like trying to connect those two while staring directly at what I look like would make me feel since I, you know, go throughout my day not constantly looking at myself, it felt really strange to be actively thinking about who I am while seeing what other people see. And that, like, created a really unreal feeling for me. I know exactly what you mean. Um, because the first time I really noticed any kind of DPDR, I have a really vivid memory of being, like, 11 or 12. 
and I was at my friend's house, and we were just, like, playing or horsing around or whatever, and I went to the bathroom, and as I was washing my hands, I looked up, and I'm like, what the fuck am I looking at? Like, who who is this guy? This is what I look like? This is what other people see when they see me? And something in that just wrinkled my brain and created, like, that's when it really started setting in. Yeah. And then, like, I don't know about for you, but for me, when that would happen, I would think, like, well, a few minutes ago, I was interacting with such and such person, and I was doing this. Does that mean that when I was doing this, they saw this guy in the mirror doing that stuff? <laughs> That's so weird to me, because I was doing that. That is really weird. I mean, you don't, re- you, you don't really see your face a whole lot, and you just sort of, when you do, you just sort of go about it without thinking about it too much. But... You know, if you were to map your your felt sense of space, you know, you have like hand stuff around here, and then you like you maybe can see bits of your nose when you're looking around lower down or something like that. And then there's just this sort of emptiness. And somewhere, I feel like back here, maybe even like behind your head, for me is like a sense of the camera you know what i mean like the observer or the watchers like back here somewhere trippy (laughs) hell yeah but um the mirror thing i actually had that in my notes here too because i i will i was gonna ask you how if if mirrors did anything for you um but in the matrix when Neo is first starting to notice that there's something funky going on after he takes the LSD or whatever. And then he looks at the mirror and the mirror unshatters or whatever. And he has this first like glimpses of, oh shit. Um, I wonder, aside from the Alice in Wonderland metaphor or illusion that they were going for, I wonder if there was anything like that. Um, And I also have to wonder, being transgendered if you get any kind of like dpdr associations with that if if your like gender expression isn't matching your like felt experience in some way i mean like i don't identify as trans but i'm gay and so i had the experience growing up of projecting one identity to the world that was different from who i felt i truly was inside so i think i mean my experience isn't the same as a trans person's. I don't want to speak for somebody who's trans and I'm not, but I feel like there there could definitely be something there. Like looking into a mirror, especially in that moment when he's just basically been told everything around you is the lie and you're the real thing. And then he looks into the mirror and it could have something to do with that, that idea of finally seeing, starting to see things for how they truly are, or like recognizing the truth of who he is in relation to other things. I mean, that's what mirrors do. They they show us ourselves in a way. And maybe, I mean, he was starting to understand the relationship between himself and the world in another way in that moment. Yeah. I also wonder, I'm sure it was intentional, but the fact that it was a shattered reflection that healed itself as he was uh, comprehending the unreality or starting to wake up... Um, I wonder if that's supposed to be symbolic of some kind of uh, psychological reintegration or unshattering or... It could be. I don't know. Sure you don't want to rewatch these movies? 
maybe we'll we'll, we'll see if uh, see if I get sufficiently titillated by <laughs> these discussions. I kind of wanted to ask you also because um, we we talked about these movies a lot back in the day when we were in like community college together. We go to the Sherry's, we talk about, like, the Matrix and religion and spirituality. And at the time, we were both kind of, like, Christian, but grappling with some fundamental uh, questions about Christianity and also curious about other spiritual traditions and kind of seeing if there was anything that could help us understand our what was going on with for us with Christianity and our Christian paths at that time. Um, so we, we spent some good hours, uh, drinking coffee at un- ungodly times of night, talking about this kind of thing, um, which may or may not have contributed to <laughs> DPDR the next day. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, but I have, it's not something we've talked about a lot recently, so I was kind of curious, uh, about, like, checking back in and seeing kind of where are you or if that's something you even think about much anymore do you mean just like uh my relationship to like uh spirituality yeah and however you would define that it's something that i think about a lot but i don't i I think about it every day but i don't uh i don't actually actively do any kind of practices i don't meditate uh i don't read um Religious texts. I do the one book when I moved back in here to my dad's house after I graduated. The one book that I unpacked, thought I could you know get some nice bedtime reading out of was uh, this text, "The World's Religions." That was the textbook oh, for nice. my uh, my world religions class at community college. Um, Classic. So it's something that I think about quite a bit, but I don't. I don't consider myself a religious person anymore. Um, but I also, I feel like it would be a cop-out to say, oh, I'm spiritual but not religious because I don't actually engage in any kind of practice. But the fact that you want to say that, I have to ask, what does that mean to you? I mean, without just like tossing it aside with some self-criticism or whatever, but the fact that you want to say that, it means something to you. I think it means, I feel like I want to be able to engage with the world and with myself and with other people on non-superficial levels. Mm. And I've been working a lot more in recent years on the way that I interact with other people and uh, forming relationships and getting out of my own head and out of my own comfort zone a lot more so that I can interact with the people and engage with the world around me. And I feel like that has come at the expense of sort of checking in with myself. It may have even coincided with um, when I started taking antidepressants, which I've actually been off of for about two weeks now, and I don't really know how I feel about that yet. Um, mm. It's mostly just because my doctor stopped taking my insurance out, like, out of the blue, <laughs> so I need to find a new doctor. Oh, shit. But uh, I don't know. It's... I find myself in a situation where a lot of the people in my life these days um, don't have that sort of spiritual background. So there's not a lot of people that I talk to. But I mean, Brian is sort of casually interested in things like uh, astrology, tarot cards, and stuff like that as sort of 
Not like literally. Sort of like how we used to talk about it. Like it's a you can like draw the tarot card and look at it and use it as a way to like meditate on it and, and meditate on your life through that framework or through that lens. That kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I don't know. I, I feel like it's 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 a it's a something that used to be pretty big in my life that has definitely been put on the back burner for quite a while now. But I I, I think about it a lot, and I feel like especially during this sort of two year transition period that I've been in since I decided to go back to school and finish my degree, I feel like I'm maneuvering back into a place where I can sort of start taking these different threads of my life and start weaving them back together into into a whole. Now, especially now that I have gotten a better handle on some of them, like interacting with people and, and getting out into the world and doing things like that in a, in a healthier way. And now maybe I can start incorporating all of that back together. Yeah. It seems like a good foundation for approaching a more like holistic and maybe experientially rooted kind of spirituality. Mm-hmm. Cause I know like certainly whatever flavor of Christianity we were raised in, our approach seemed to be very conceptual and like very like stuck in our heads. It was about what you believe or don't believe as like literal truths and almost like statements that you can check off or put in a column or something like that. Yeah. And I've given that some thought lately too. And I mean, it's sort of dismissive and sort of mean, but the, the sort of, Cliff Notes, the fortune cookie version that I came up with was that my old brand of Christianity was the laziest possible form of religion. It was, like you said, it was just a checklist, like, do you believe X, Y, and Z? Good. Do you not believe X, Y, and Z? Bad. And that's the extent of it. It was just, are you thinking correctly? Done. You're in heaven. I feel like uh, uh, a more fulfilling form of spirituality for me would involve actually taking stock of how I'm living my life and how I'm interacting with other people and the world in a in a, in a, an appreciable and even like observable way rather than just like you said conceptually in my head. Yeah, for sure. Facebook and I'll tell I'll say that I'm a Buddhist as just kind of a shortcut and also because I feel like uh, most people who aren't really involved with that kind of thing don't have a really clear idea of what a Buddhist is mm-hmm. um, so that gives me a little more room to move around in as opposed to if I just say like oh I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic I think most people have an idea you know like they know where to categorize you or what to label you yeah. as but I certainly like wasn't raised in a Buddhist culture, and I don't employ a lot of traditional uh, Buddhist symbols or forms just because there's, they're sort of alien to me. They're, they're different to me than, you know, I don't necessarily celebrate holidays that would be considered Buddhist holidays or anything like that just because I'm not really a part of that culture. So I've been, I've been sort of playing in this new kind of Western and American... Uh, it's been called like pragmatic dharma mm. or American Buddhism seems to be kind of forming and congealing and 
inventing its own forms. I find that a fun space to play in, but spirituality in a wider sense is still something that I am curious about, even outside of that, whether that be uh, contemporary pagan forms or, you know, different ways of approaching traditional stuff. Like, I I think the Quakers are kind of cool. I kind of like what they have going on. I find that the least offensive contemporary form of Christianity. I I feel like I would have no beef with Quakers. (laughs) Do you remember when we went to the uh, Unitarian Universalist Church here in Olympia and it was just a bunch of, like, white yuppies patting themselves on the back for being progressive? Yeah, I do remember that. I do remember that. Um, I I went to a Unitarian Universalist service in Bellingham that I sort of liked. And I liked it because um, I don't remember the leader's name or even what the title is, but he sort of approached some life question or life issue and then went through, this is what this tradition says. This is the, these are the tools this tradition gives. And I, I liked that more like, let's just kind of like, accept the mystery and then look at this like grab bag of traditions just because i'm more broadly curious about that sort of thing but it is still very rooted in these like protestant forms and and i had trouble with that i had trouble with the way that people are you know singing and and the like the the liturgy of it and everything was just a little too close to what i had come out of Our God is an awesome God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that song. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> no, I never, I never went to, uh, to one when I was up in Bellingham. Uh, that would have been, that would have been cool to, if I had ended up at that same one, so I could give you my take on it. But unfortunately, I didn't make it there when I was up there. Um, uh, I have another podcast for you. All it's right. called Against the Stream. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, have I told you about that one before? No, I'm, I'm, I'm a subscriber. It's oh, cool. uh, Noah yeah, Levine's thing. Is the uh, the Dharma Punks guy right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I've been listening to that podcast. Uh, I've been enjoying just like a series of like Dharma talks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's good well, stuff. I was going to recommend that to you, but looks like you're a step ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the subject of Dharma related podcasts, uh, deconstructing yourself is really good uh, non-traditional pragmatic dharma kind of podcast. Um, Mm. I really enjoyed the discussions. They've had uh, Shinzen Young, Chula Dasa, Rob Berbea. Um, They've had some really great guests and really interesting conversations. Um, I particularly have to recommend the Shinzen ones, because he kind of goes into the felt experience of emptiness, and it's pretty interesting uh, hearing how he talks about or tries to convey what it is like. <clears throat> that sounds exciting. That sounds like right up my alley right now. Yeah, check it out and let me know what you think. Now my mind is just like spinning with like Buddhism stuff again. This is very interesting. That's the chapter that I've been reading in my. Uh my religious textbook that I read to fall asleep is the Buddhism chapter. Mm. Sort of like you said, um, if pressed to identify with a world religion, I, I'll say Buddhism. Like, in terms of, like, core ideas and stuff, I do find it that it most closely meshes with with what I'm feeling these days. But I 
similarly, like I, I don't know how 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 closely I can identify myself with this since I don't come from that tradition. I I don't actively practice and things like like even to the extent I don't I don't meditate regularly. Like I, I earlier today in this podcast, you mentioned that you were meditating. I don't even go to that extent, so I don't know how much of how much affinity I can claim with Buddhism, but. It's definitely it's definitely what what's sort of floating my boat spiritually right now. Mm. Yeah, th- there's good stuff to it. Um, it's a pretty wide uh, ocean of traditions and ideas and texts mm. and ways of thinking. In uh, in Seattle this weekend, we were walking toward uh, Pike Place Market, and uh, a lady stopped Brian. And pressed a little image of a bodhisattva into his hand and started saying, pray for peace. And he was like, okay, I will. And then she pulled out a bracelet, kept repeating peace, peace, and put the bracelet on his wrist. And he said, okay, thank you. And tried to walk away and she grabbed his wrist and pulled out a small notebook and asked for his name, address, phone number, and a $20 donation to peace. And uh, we weren't able to get away before she took seven dollars from him. <laughs> oh man! And then she tried to she tried to put an amulet around his neck and asked for more money. And then I just pulled him away. Like I didn't realize it was a grift at first. I thought she was just like spreading Buddhism. Yeah. Well, that's why it works, right? Like, yeah. It's you're you're like the the frog in boiling water sort of thing. Yeah, seems legitimate. It just seems like a nice bath at first. That's true. This actually hurts more than I remember that. <laughs> oh, this is a hot tub. Oh, this is a very hot tub. <laughs> and oh, now I'm, I'm broke. Dying. What's happening? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are people who pretend to be monks and will get like robes and stuff, or nuns, and then just you know do it to get money. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, no tradition is completely free of charlatans and self-interest. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have much more to say on that. He kept the bracelet. <laughs> so he, bu- he basically bought a bracelet for $7? A bracelet and a small image of the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara that the... Uh, I stuck to the gum wall when we when we got down to the gum wall. <laughs> the bodhisattva of grifting. Yep. Um, she's she's got a thousand hands, and each one is reaching for a pocket. So seven dollars for a image of Avalokiteshvara and a bracelet and a cool story. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> I achieved world peace, and it only cost me seven dollars. I mean, that's not a bad deal. No. Oh, so uh. Avalokitesvara is an interesting uh, figure, too, because I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding of it is he starts off as a male disciple of the Buddha and then kind of works his way east, and these Avalokitesvara forms start merging with uh, Kuan Yin, and then there's like a spectrum of that bodhisattva cloud of figures and associations and then as you go eventually it's a woman um which i find interesting that's not something you see in a lot of traditions yeah i think it uh i think it's appropriate for a 
a Buddhist or I guess like a Dharmic figure to uh, across time and space assume different forms and different incarnations based on where it pops up. I think that's pretty appropriate. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not incompatible with uh, the mythology or the general like meta-philosophy of it. If your experience of reality itself is a construct, of course gender is a construct also, so um, it's cool for that spectrum to kind of exist. Yeah, well, it's stuck to a wall covered in gum underground or whatever in an alley in Seattle now, so her blessings will reach someone else. Yeah, it'll be seen. All sorts of karmic ripples. What have I done? (laughs) Yeah. So, space magic? Space magic. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have the bullet list of just cool topics? Well, you uh, brought up space magic in the last episode. It was just kind of an aside thing. But that, that made an impression on me. So now every once in a while, I just say, like, space magic. <laughs> I like the idea of space magic. I like fantasy and I like sci-fi, but the way space magic is done in Destiny isn't really super explained. It's just like a big ball and it floats around the universe and sometimes it chooses a race or a civilization and gives them space magic and makes some of the people immortal for some reason. And then they have like space magic and can't die. And so that's your character in Destiny. You're dead for hundreds of years, then you get space magic and come back to life and can't die. Now go shoot things. Okay, so I I did follow what was happening in the first Destiny then. That is pretty much just what happened. I was like, this doesn't really make sense to me. (laughs) But that, like, ghost, uh, Tyrion Lannister, Peter Dinklage. Oh, they replaced him. I mean, I, I like Peter Dinklage, but definitely he did not seem like he was enjoying himself doing that. He read his lines with the tone of somebody who has been called on by the teacher to read the next paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Um, But all of the lore, which I'm sure is rich, and I'm sure is super deep and layered, but it's all behind the scenes. I still don't really understand why I have the space magic that I have, or at all about how it works. Like, one of the descriptions, it literally just says, subvert the law of physics. But how? I guess it's space magic. You don't really need much of an explanation. You're in space, it's magic. You're done. I just want to know, like, anything about it, <laughs> because I'm, I don't know. At this point, it's basically just a button that I push, and it's like flipping a light switch. I don't know. I don't know how it happens. It just does. Actually, I know more about how a light switch works than about how the magic works in yeah, Destiny. I could at least tell you a story about what's happening when I flip a light switch. Yeah, I don't know. Ever since I reread Lord of the Rings a few years ago and realized that there isn't a whole lot of overt magic in that series, and there's 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 one part in particular when when they're in Moria and the Balrog first shows up, sort of off screen, and Gandalf says, "Everybody run down the stairs and I'll hold it off," and they run away. And they can hear fighting going on upstairs. There's like an explosion, and Gandalf comes down the stairs. And he's really weak and tired. And all he says is, I fought it off as best I could, and then I had to use a word of command on, like, capitalized word of command, and it brought the ceiling of the chamber crashing down, and it weakened him. And that was, that's the only reference, I mean, there's, like, references to, like, spells here and there, but there's no descriptions, really. And then just this, this mysterious term, word of command, like, what is that? We don't know. Mm-hmm. It's not super 
important. It's just something that he can do, apparently. Beyond that, the magic that does exist in that world is sort of just like... It's like a force of nature, sort of like gravity or heat or something. It's just something that is sort of there. And I've started to appreciate that a bit more. More more so than, say, like the magic in Harry Potter, where you... <laughs> I don't even want to talk about that. Uh, I'm going to talk about it then. Because I, I was thinking about Harry Potter while you were talking about Lord of the Rings magic. And, like, the Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings magic is used sparingly, and it's so enigmatic, so it's still impactful. Like, even if you don't know how it works, and there's no, like, clear system outlined for it, it gives the impression that there is something broader going on that that is just sort of beyond your your knowledge or comprehension or something. And I, I mean, I'm cool with that. Like, I like Lovecraft for that reason. You know, they... It's not just like a bad guy with a tentacle mouth, you know, it's like something that's utterly beyond <laughs> comprehension that has that sort of form. Um, so it's still yeah. impactful and it's not all over the place. If there's like tentacle mouth gobbledygooks popping up all over the place, like Lovecraft wouldn't work. It wouldn't be remembered. Um, but Harry Potter is like, it's kind of plot magic. Like there's no, okay, it's you, it's also not really explained at least I I only read the first three books, but mm-hmm. you know things are just, you, you say these words just right, and then something whimsical happens, and Harry loves it, you know. So okay, it's not explained, <laughs> but it's all over the place. It's ubiquitous and fairly trivial to do really strange stuff, like really strange stuff, changing form, magic light shows, like just all kinds of like wild crap. And so because it was so ubiquitous. And so kind of trivial, it it just never seemed that impactful. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a moment in uh, the sixth book of Harry Potter when uh, Harry travels with Dumbledore to a uh, like a cave that Voldemort has hidden something away in, and they're trying to figure out how to get into the cave. And Dumbledore doesn't have his wand out. He's just sort of, like, feeling the air and, like, meditating on the space. And he says something like, oh, surely not. How crude. And he, like, is able to intuit what this magic is that he needs to deal with. And the way he interacts with it and, like, breaks the spell, there's no, like, flashes of light or sounds or anything. And Harry, like, the narration is, like, Harry thought it was really unimpressive, but then he realized, like, over the course of all his time, like, amongst magicians, he realized, like, there's lots of spells that have, like, crazy sounds and lights and smoke and stuff, and they don't do a whole lot. Mm. They're just fluff. And it's the big magic that, like, really affects the world on a subtle level isn't going to have these huge light shows. And that's the type of magic that he's seeing. And it's, like, his first glimpse of seeing what, like, really high-level magic looks like. Interesting. Yeah, that kind of suggests a kind of metaphysics that... I didn't really get out of Harry Potter or any indication in just the books I read and the movies I saw that there was anything like that. But I'll have to poke through some Wikipedias and TV tropes articles now. (laughs) About the advanced magic of Harry Potter. Yeah, exactly. If there's some like juicy world building bits, even if I'm not interested in the like reading the fiction or watching a TV series through completion, I kind of just like knowing how does this world work? How does this world function? Like, I'm not necessarily willing to invest. Like, um, what was that book called? Nine Princes in Amber. 
I could not stand Nine Princes in Amber, but the world was so interesting. Uh, if you're into world building, check it out. They've got like a multiverse kind of system where there's like a, the true world and then everything else, including our world, is some steps removed from that along various mm. like lines of deviation or something like that. And then there are figures that correspond with some kind of tarot cards that they have that can move between these worlds and kind of shift through the worlds. And it it gives them access to a kind of like multiverse magic, which is kind of nifty, but I hated the characters and I did not like the prose. But if you're like me at all, it's definitely worth poking through some TV tropes or wikis about that. I'll have to look into it. Anywho, space magic. Space magic, magic, magic. Any other kinds of magic? Time magic. Time magic. I was really disappointed in the... Well, I feel bad for ragging on Final Fantasy XV as much as I do. It was just a huge red for me. But the magic in that game, it's not really explained how it works. It, you, like, draw it out of the ground. There's three elements. You can combine it in different ways, and you put it in a bottle, and then you throw the bottle like a grenade. It's basically... There basically isn't magic in that game, like traditional Final Fantasy. It's just different grenades. Like, there's a fire grenade, an ice grenade, and a lightning grenade, and sometimes they can, like, also poison somehow. So you mix together items with apparently some kind of magical energy that you draw from the ground. Put it in a bottle, shake it up, and throw it at monsters. There is that aphorism about magic that any sufficiently boring magic will be indistinguishable from grenades. (laughs) That's true. So that kind of reminds me of, I think it was in Discworld, where there's a bit of um, exposition somewhere about magic is a thing, but doing anything particularly impressive with it is so complicated and requires so much time or resources that it's almost always easier to just do the thing through some other means. That's how it is in uh, the King Killer Chronicle by Patrick Rothfuss. A lot like the main form of magic is uh, basically like energy transference and depending on the medium you use or like there's like a bunch of different restrictions and it like can hinder the amount of energy that is channeled into a task. So like if you use magic to like lift something remotely, you still have to put in the effort of lifting it. You're just lifting it from far away. And if the medium that you're using to like channel the magic isn't appropriate to the task you're doing, it can take actually more effort on your part to do the task by magic than it did than it would just mm. doing it normally. Yeah, I like that. Oh, another um, magic system. Um, I've been playing a little bit of the uh, South Park Xbox game, and in that game, magic is different ways of fanning farts so that they have different effects in the world. So, like, that's that's another way of looking at it. Um, that's definitely in some of the Crowley texts, the, the fart-based <laughs> magics. I'm pretty sure. I hope you're joking with me. I'm almost certain I read I that in book four somewhere. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> my favorite tarot card and my favorite astrological sign are the fart. He controlled the vigorous steam, he harnessed the lightning for hire, he drove the celestial team, and man was the lord of the fire. Deep mouths from their throne, deep speaking, 
But choirs of the demons declare the last of the demons defeated. The man is the lord of the air. Music by Black Ant, James Pants, Chris Zabriskie, Scott Holmes, Glass Boy, Culla, Graham Bull, plus audio from The Pentagram, written and performed by The Great Beast, Alistair Crowley! Track listings, licenses, and links in the show notes, including all audio clips and sound effects used in this episode. If you want to chime in and respond to anything you heard, maybe you want to dispute our less-than-charitable take on the Book of Job, send us an email at heyfuckface at itsnoworneverpodcast.com. Visit itsnoworneverpodcast.com for previous episodes. Take care of yourselves. Share with people you trust. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Thank you so much for listening. 